everybody, it's Dominique. And I'm Isha. Welcome back to the Founders Roundtable. For the first time ever, we're bringing on two guests at once. Today's guests are changemakers, both individually and together, and are working to transform the health of Detroiters for generations to come. They both understand on a personal level what it means to live in communities deprived of access to healthy food and having nutritional literacy kept out of neighborhoods. Dasmini Carr and Raphael Wright are joining us today to talk about the movement they are building to empower the city. Dominique and I met Dasmonique when she was creating just the first chapter of the work she's doing today with her business, Deeply Rooted Produce. She is now bringing the food to the people, as well as the information they need to nourish themselves and their families. Raphael Wright is a social entrepreneur as well, and the author of two Amazon best-selling books. He is the founder of Urban Plug, the creator of Neighborhood Grocery, which is the first Black-owned grocery store in the city of Detroit. His goal is to bring health to neighborhoods who have historically been left behind by big box grocery stores. And he and Desmonique are working hard to make this a solution that can change as many lives as possible together. We have amazing guests, as you guys have just heard from listening to their amazing bios, but that definitely does not do them justice. So uh, before we really dive in, I wanted to share that um, I actually met Desmonique a few years ago through a Wayne State incubator program. Des, like, do you remember that? I can't believe that was just, just like a few years ago. Yeah, it seemed, well, when you look at the dates, it seems like it was so long ago, 2019, 20. 18 and things like that because I did optimize twice but um but yeah it was definitely it seemed like it was a long time ago but time never waits for anybody I met Raphael a few what months ago maybe even one or two months ago um I actually learned about him through the social entrepreneurship committee and he's going to be one of our speakers i was just fascinated by his story and i'm like i gotta connect with him and see if we can get him on the podcast so uh how did y'all like how did this partnership come about so i think it came about pretty organically as far as like we knew each other for a few years communicated on our intentions of working together but we just didn't know how it fit just yet um had a few meetings while I was still on Wayne State's campus but we just didn't know what action to take and then as soon as um Raphael got some land and figured that you know what deeply rooted produce aligned with what he wanted to do then we we set out a time to kind of work on some details and um, and started from there. I love that. Yeah, especially because um, it was just organic. I mean, a lot of times I think things are just about alignment. So, you know, you can always have these ideas or want a partner, but sometimes it's just not the right, right time, you know? Um, so, Raphael, y'all both like born and raised in Detroit, right? I believe so. Um, I'm born and raised in Detroit, um, East Sider. Um, I've been here my entire life. Um, so, the perspective of a, a lifelong Detroiter is a little different than those that, you know, have moved in later. You know, um, 
I like to call us, and I, I I found this word or term. I think it was from a Mike Duggan speech of Legacy Detroiter, and I've been here since 1988. I was born in that year, so um, I've seen the city as absolute worst, as well as seeing it, you know, um, ascend, uh, you know, allegedly or however we want to see it. So, um, yeah, I've been here since I've been here a long time. No, I love that you mentioned that too. Like, it's something about seeing the growth, whether that's in a person or the city, you know, along a period of time and then being a part of the growth is huge. And that's why I knew it was so important. You know, Isha and I both knew it was so important just to have y'all on here today. Before we dive in a little bit deeper, um, Desmonique, so can you kind of tell us a bit, are you from Detroit um, or you're a native Detroiter? Um, so I'm not, uh, I wasn't raised in Detroit, but I grew up here. My roots are in Detroit. I've visited Detroit probably several times when I was younger because I do have family members that are here, over 300 cousins that are here, but I didn't. Um, I'm originally from New Jersey and was transplanted through track scholarship at Wayne State. I still remember first meeting Daz during Optimize Wayne and like the first workshop that she ever came to and it was amazing to see like the progression of her as like a leader and a social impact entrepreneur and just throughout the program and then yes like you did do it twice but I feel like that first time you like you went from not wanting to speak and we were at the same intro table to taking charge of like your your project and like growing it into this awesome thing that you both are working together on today. So it was just amazing to see. And that's why I'm even more excited to have both of you on today because we get to learn about like the next evolution and how you all are using all of these different tools and, and, and connecting community and connecting with this sort of this, this issue that's been rooted in communities across really honestly even the country and, and you're starting in Detroit and it's really amazing to see what you guys are already doing and what you're going to do. Um, and so moving into communities, I guess, food is obviously such a powerful tool and it unites people across communities and across backgrounds and everyone has their own pers personal connection to food. Um, and I'm sure that both of you have missions in your own minds about the future of food, food deserts, obviously you're working towards solving right now and food insecurity in Detroit. And we know these problems impact millions of people. So I would love for you guys to start off by sharing your own personal connection to the mission that you're trying to solve and how you sort of came across it. And we're like, we have to do something about this. Um, growing up here in Detroit, um you have like several extremes when you approach food you have you know what you eat at home with your parents what you cook with the what your parents cook you know aunts uncles granny whatever and then you have what's outside of the home you know food away from home and um the the social fabric shifts so quickly when you know, you're trying to move up the economic ladder, um, you know, meals become less of a home cooked thing and more of just what's available um, right then and there. You know, you work like, like my mother did work all day, but still came home to cook. Um, you are blessed. But I know a lot of my friends and even relatives, um, their, their parents work very long, ungodly hours. So once you get off, even if you have money, you tend to just go to McDonald's. You tend to, you know, just go to the Coney Island. You tend to just go to 
uh, the fringe sources that's all around, you know, and um, the word like food desert in itself has never been applied properly um, when it comes to Detroit. Uh, we have never been a food desert, even when I was growing up, it was never a desert. It was always a swamp um, because we got plenty of food all over the place, but the food that's available, um, you it will never sustain a community. So it's always been desert, 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 which I think has created like a bad cloud for efforts like, you know, Dad's and myself. Um, we're not able to capitalize effectively. We're not able to um, receive the resources and um, other things that we need to really sustain and grow our models because it's a desert. You know, why would I want to invest in something that's dry and deserted? But, you know, growing up, um, you just don't think about those things being real. You know, you don't think about how McDonald's will affect you when you become an adult. You don't think about, you know, I ate chips and pop, drank pop every morning, you know, going to school. You don't think about what that does, you know, in the media and the news growing up, we always talk about crack babies and, you know what I mean, what that does to a person in their development, but we never talk about sugar and that's probably worse. So um, I became a victim of food insecurity. I was diagnosed with diabetes when I was 19. Um, and that kind of started my path into um, one, food security or food sovereignty, you know, wanting to build a grocery store that will be um, anchored in a community that will not only provide healthy food, but other things, but, you know, for the most part, agriculture as well. Um, but then overall, my biggest vision has just been to reimagine and reshape the neighborhoods that I'm from, um, knowing that I grew up in neighborhoods that didn't have grocery stores. So I've lived in food deserted communities, but the city overall is not a desert, but I've lived in neighborhoods that don't have a grocery store. Um, that has to be there if you want to rebuild the community. So you, you can't you can't start nowhere else until you look at the food that's in that community. If you can't feed the people, then there's nothing else you can do. So um, just reimagining what community looks like, that's really where I've knocked on the door, opened the door to um, all of the work that's associated with food security, food sovereignty, um, and health. So um, I know that was a little wordy, and I want to give you a... I want to get Daz's take because I never heard it heard from her mouth, but um, that's pretty much my start um, into the field and where I'm at today is I want to build communities. It starts with food. It doesn't end there because you have to incorporate so many other elements, you know what I'm saying, politics, education, media, um, several things. But with all that being said, it has to start with food. That's the foundation to everything. Yeah, and I think, like Raphael said, <clears throat> most people create a business or organization based off of something that they struggled with or experienced throughout their life. So with me, it was food access in school. All of this scholarship money is coming in um, or grants and uh, loans and things like that, but I didn't know how to manage it. So I feel like my problem was more so financial literacy in addition to food access or food sovereignty. Um, more so because I had access to grocery stores, but the cost of that food and the quality of that food wasn't that great. It would go bad a couple of days after I would get it. Um, and then I was going through, or well, I transitioned out of a relationship and the person I was in the relationship with spent or paid for majority of the groceries. So now I'm, I'm uh, head of household or whatever and paying for my own groceries and didn't even know um, 
you know, how much they cost um, or valued what my quality, the, I didn't understand what quality I value at the time for myself. Um, so yeah, as a student athlete, um, I transitioned to learn how to grow food because I volunteer with the Detroit um, Biodiversity Network. They wanted to grow native plants that um, grew in Detroit and Michigan, but I learned that food um, was something that I could get through a $2 pack of seeds or a 99 cent pack of seeds. So I will be planting and growing these things, squash and um, zucchinis. And then they're like, well, what are you going to do with all of this? Because you can't stay here. <laughs> so I started working with nonprofits, um, specifically Auntie Nay's house and grew a whole bunch of food there. Um, she allowed me to pretty much, or she facilitated me consuming a whole bunch of high quality food in addition to distributing a lot of food that um, went to neighborhoods that they would have at their Saturday um, distribution. So in a, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I knew that the food that I was eating was more healthier than what I was getting at the grocery store. So, and I knew there was people who didn't really get the same quality right there to their doorstep. Um, then I started delivering food off my bike. I had a wagon and a crate tied to my bike, um, riding my bike from Eastern Market to the farm, because um, I started to get involved with Keep Growing Detroit and their Growing in Detroit program. So it was very little steps that leads up to Deeply Rooted Produce today and the vehicles that we are um, getting and have um, that literally was a step in the direction towards the rest of my life and the rest of the story of Deeply Rooted Produce. That is amazing. I really appreciate the fact that you both shared stories of how you were personally affected or people you knew were personally affected by the problem that you're trying to solve. And also just talking about all of the tools that we need to combine to solve the problem and, and that it starts with food. That was really important. And um, Raphael, I love that you talked about just the importance of not generalizing, um, you know, one place as a food desert and actually looking at each individual community and seeing what access that individual community has to food in itself and then how that can, how generalizing can even impact the support that you guys are getting as social impact entrepreneurs in these communities. So that was a really important point. And it also reminds me to make sure I'm paying attention as I phrase my questions as well. So I appreciate you bringing that up. So Raphael was talking about like um, waking up and eating hot Cheetos or chips. Let me tell you, so I was one of them kids um, like in elementary school. I went to elementary school right around like Wayne State area. Um, and we used to get up like, I used to have hot Cheetos for breakfast. like. So we would be in like the courtyard waiting for um, the bell to ring. And my parents could definitely, I'm sure I could have had some, some cereal, something, but it was a thing. So we would go to school and eat hot Cheetos for breakfast. And so you know how you, you normally make Kool-Aid and you got your water, your sugar, a spoon and a container, you're gonna start it at home, right? And then, you know, you pour it out in the cup like a, you know, normal, um person so what we would do is get a ziploc bag i would sneak in my kitchen at night and i would get a ziploc bag get at least like a cup of sugar in there and then i would pour the kool-aid in there and i would sneak because i didn't want my mom to know what i was doing 
So the next day we would go to school and in like the courtyard, it was a thing. So you would take your Ziploc bag full of your sugar and your Kool-Aid. And then you would literally like cut out a part of the, a small little part of the Ziploc bag. And then you would go around with your friends and you would just, you would just put it in their hands and then you would lick your hand. I know this is this is disgusting, right? I'm embarrassed to say this. I've never even said this out loud. So yeah, you would like just lick your hand and then you go to school with your little nasty, dirty hand and it'd be the color of whatever Kool-Aid that you ate that day. On top of that, your hands are red because you've been eating hot Cheetos for breakfast. So you just, you just little nasty, dirty kid all around, okay? So... We all said this. I feel like my parents would be like, you didn't even want raised like that. But yeah, so that's what I think about, right? So it wasn't until I got to high school where I met one of my really, really good friends and her family, like everything was organic. Like deodorant was organic, toothpaste, her uh, chips. Like you thought you were gonna have like some hot Cheetos? No, you had some like, I don't know, organic, type of chips, whatever. And I was like, this is so fascinating. You mean your deodorant is organic? This is crazy. So it wasn't until then I said, wow, I'm going to practice. I can't go to Coney Island right after practice. So I just started like, it just reprogrammed my mind. So it's, I really feel like many times until we're directly affected by a problem, like you've been diagnosed with something or you know somebody just introduced you to something different, you know, it changes your perspective. So I just really appreciate y'all sharing that. I mean, I like haven't thought about them hot Cheeto days uh, in so long. But yeah, so I just appreciate y'all sharing that. And um, I love hearing like why people started things because it's so purposeful. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in like when the problem that you're trying to solve is not about you and it's like a people problem, that's when you know it's special and you should really pursue it. Um, but we think about communities, we think about nonprofits, right? So, so many people think in order to help the community, you have to be a nonprofit. So I wanted to talk to y'all about like, can you share more about like how you're structured? Um, what was that process in figuring out how you should be structured? Just to provide some insight to someone else who thinks that um, they should have to go the nonprofit route. My very, 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 very first dollar that I've ever made um, as a self-employed business person was selling Kool-Aid packs. Um, I went to Folks Middle School, which um, is now Southeastern. So where Southeastern High School is, it was a middle school next to it called Folks. That's where I went to middle school for sixth and seventh grade. Um, back when I was going to school, and this is it's all social programming or just how society is at the time. It wasn't cool to carry a book bag. It really wasn't cool to be smart. You like you basically that's what it was. If you if you got good grades, you was a nerd or whatever the case may be. You couldn't carry a book bag. You got talked about all this stuff. So I was the hybrid because I was smart, but I was also a cool kid. I, I I've been taking martial arts since I was like five so I did not get bothered I didn't get bullied people didn't mess with me and also I was able to get you know Jordans and video games stuff like that so um I was always on the cool side but I always carried a book bag as well because my parents didn't play that I had to carry a book bag um during this particular school year and this is seventh grade 
um, we were all doing that same Kool-Aid concoction. We would fill up a bag full of sugar, add the Kool-Aid in it, mix it up, and then we would bite the bag and just eat Kool-Aid from the bag. Um, just imagine what that's doing to seventh graders at eight o'clock in the morning. By 11 o'clock, they turned up. So the faculty, the, the administration, it, it, I don't know if it was a DPS school-wide thing, but for our school specifically, we were sent home with letters like, these kids cannot bring this Kool-Aid to school. If we catch them with it, they go on the detention or again suspended. Well, I don't watch one too many drug movies. I had my book bag. Nobody else had one. So I went to the neighborhood grocery store, got a bunch of sugar, got a big thing of sugar, probably about three, two, three dollars. Got a bunch of Kool-Aid. They were 25 cents at the time. And I I was in the kitchen cooking up. I had about 20 some bags of Kool-Aid. Um, and they were in my book bag. So I got into school. They didn't check, you know what I mean? And I set up shop when I sold Kool-Aid packs for like a good little week or a half, week and a half. And then the fat ended so that I couldn't sell it no more. But like we have to think about what we did to ourselves. And I think like looking at one of my favorite shows right now, Snowfall, the main character is mirroring Freeway Ricky Ross, who um, is the godfather of crack cocaine, pretty much introducing a specific style of how to cook freebase to the United States, popularizing it for the most part. And he's told stories about how he did not realize what he was doing to the community. He was just chasing money, no different than me when I was in seventh grade. I, I'm not realizing that I'm giving kids pure sugar every day, you know what I'm saying? And you don't know what effect that's doing to your body you just looking at the dollar and like the educational element have been stripped away from us somehow. Like we're not taught. Like it's a I have a you know four year old and she gets in the car and talks about candy ain't good for you, apples are good for you. Like that was never taught when I was in school. We never had that. Well, at least to my knowledge, it was never something that we were taught. But um, having that now at younger ages is beautiful, and then you are reinforced at home is even greater. But I was selling that Kool-Aid every day until the fad ended and we wasn't on it no more. But that was just something that we all did as kids. You know what I'm saying? Consumption rate of sugar, artificial sweeteners and artificial products in general, which is at a just at a rate that's just ungodly. And then it does, um, you know, a huge detriment to the body. But to get to the question, because I don't want to get too far, but to get to the question, um, my business, Neighborhood Grocery specifically, um, is an LLC. So it is a for-profit enterprise. My umbrella company, Urban Plug, is a L3C, which is a low-profit enterprise. And that kind of feathers out the model that I have in every business that's in that umbrella is that um, I can make money and you can be a capitalist and make money um, capitalism is, in essence, a bad thing if you are redistributing that wealth effectively. Um, I think from my studies in undergrad and just in my independent studies at home, you know, capitalism is could possibly be the greatest form of economic system in smaller populations. When the population grows to large amounts, 
that redistribution becomes a problem and you're not able to really um, effectively continue that mission. Um, but like in cases like, you know, with deeply rooted garden, deeply rooted produce, neighborhood grocery, et cetera, um, being specific to who you're targeting. If I want the whole city, then I probably will fall into that inefficient capitalistic model. And I'm speaking for myself, but in the neighborhood specifically, Jefferson Chalmers, where the store is being built, um, capitalism will be beautiful because that's a real baked in community of, you know, between 10 to 13,000 people, um, a redistribution of wealth will be more capable. So um, I like to pin myself uh, conscious capitalist. You know, I, I love who don't love making money, especially living in America, and you can. Um, it's what you do with that money that makes um, the world of difference. So not being a nonprofit, um, it could be scary when you're doing people work or labor's love, um, or you could just flip the coin and say, hey, do I really need all of this stuff? You know, do I need 10 cars? Do I, do I need the biggest house in the country? Do I need the biggest boat? Do I need these things? Um, that helps feather how you approach business. It helps you feather how you approach hiring equitably, um, partnering with other folks. You know, when it's all about you, there's no partnership or collaboration. There's no fair pay. There's no equal, equitable anything. It's all coming back to me. But when you look at things more consciously, um, you, you're basically nonprofits without the title because our money is redistributed in a way that a traditional capitalist or traditional for-profit wouldn't approach. So, you know, we can make a bunch of money, but make sure that all of our people are paid properly, make sure that our vendors are paid equitably, make sure that we are uh, reinvested in the land in a way that will help instead of doing a hurt to the uh, planet. Those types of things, triple bottom line economics, et cetera, um, we can be effective and not be a nonprofit. So um, that is my take. And I don't want to take too much more because I had that weird story. So We dabble with a lot of structure um, because I love the community. I love doing things for my community. But... I knew early on that I didn't want to be exhausted. I would, I didn't want to be doing everything by myself, although I had um, board members. So I started, I started a Michigan nonprofit, but the people who I involved, they didn't really have a visceral connection to what I wanted to be, what was my baby or whatever it was. They knew that it would be successful, but I didn't feel as though they felt confident enough to execute. And so um, dabble with the nonprofit, dabble with the L3C model as well, met with um, someone who was in the city who was deemed as a, a, a connoisseur or just an expert in the L3C area. And he basically said, like, you're still going to be an LLC, but you're just going to be branding, you know, um, I'm, you're, people are going to know now, like, hey, we consider the community and we, you know, um, we're structured as this. And at the end of the day, I decided to be an LLC because it's the same thing. We still have a social mission and we're still able to communicate our mission and our through our actions. So the community dinners that we host, um, engagements with the community as far as uh, marketing goes on social media, the education aspect, um, we can transition that now to 
providing those uh those engagement points on social media and the reason why uh LLC is still beneficial because we can still get grants and stuff that we would have otherwise gotten as a nonprofit. Uh, we there are organizations who are non-traditional funders who support businesses, uh, similar to an optimized weighing program or a social enterprise. There's marketing programs like Taste the Local Difference that give out funds. Um, some give out funds, and it has to be a specific, um, a specific you have to use it for a specific thing like marketing. Um, but if it aligns with what you're already doing, then why not? Um, so we have uh, grants that are aligned with increasing access to produce to, for SNAP and EBT customers. Um, we already do that. So why not get money to do that as well? And then being an LLC puts you put us in a better position to partner with other nonprofits. We can be fiscally sponsored by a nonprofit, still apply for larger grants, and then um, we don't, we're not killing birds out here with stones, but accomplish two things at the same time um, while still uh, being fiscally and um, in integrity, having integrity in the community when it comes to our mission. So I think those are really important. Um, are you going to be doing these things alone too? Because yes, it, it was your baby. You thought of the idea, but um, is there something, do you see yourself in the people that you're working with? And I think that's very important to consider. If you don't see yourself in the per person or people that you're working with, it may or may not be beneficial because they're not going to value and have as much passion when it comes to that project or the execution of that project. That was really important to me. Daz, I love that you mentioned um, the thing that you said about team and just making sure that you see yourself in your team. I think in our last episode or a few episodes ago, we were talking about how you need to make sure that your team, um, you pick them so that they're able to carry you to the top and help you do that and, and carry out your mission. And so you want to obviously see yourselves in them and you want to make sure that they align with your mission and you're you're being really conscious about every single person that you bring on and not just you know bring on anybody when they show interest so i it's really important that you mentioned that so i appreciate it and um rafael mentioned something about i mean he was talking about like triple bottom line ventures and making sure that we're thinking about the greater impact that you know our efforts and our capital is having on the environment and you know on other people and it really matters how we spend our money and so you know however you choose to structure it, it it just depends how you choose to make the impact and i think also in another episode we um our guest rishi mentioned just having a balance of heart and dollars with whatever you do and just making sure that you're being mindful all of the time when you're making decisions that are going to impact your users your members you know your customers whoever you're building for and so with that i want to go into how obviously the climate is changing and with the lack of reliable public transportation in some areas and how you know obviously for example the queue line was built and a lot of people were excited but it doesn't even reach neighborhoods it's like on one street you know so things like that and just other transportation issues it has been really difficult and is 
becoming even more difficult if you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have a grocery store and you don't have a car to get to a grocery store. So obviously I think we were talking about access before and we can't always assume that everyone has equal access to healthy produce for these reasons. Um, and we mentioned that when we met Dad, she was working on creating a mobile grocery solution. But what are some methods that you all believe, after having worked on this problem for years now, will meet Detroiters where they are to create access to good, healthy food? We were like, we want to serve everybody. And we were going out to Troy. We were going out to Ferndale, serving Detroit, farmers markets, um, being here, being there, doing both delivery and farmers markets everywhere in Metro Detroit. And so now the hyper focus of being on the east side, it really tunes into a specific population and makes us or it allows us to be more aware of what this immediate community needs because every community needs something different and they may or may not have an appreciation for local produce. There are a lot of Metro Detroiters and people in a more affluent area of Detroit who value local produce will come to the farm and know the different varieties. But when it comes to our inner city communities and urban community, people of color, it's not even that they don't value the food because most of us grew up on this type of food. And I mean, the farm grown food, but now it's like, well, I don't really know how to use it because I remember my grandmother making fried green tomatoes or doing this and that, but she never really taught me. So I need you to, you know, teach me. So I think the literacy aspect and what Raphael has been advising me on as far as like engaging in social media, that, that educational, uh, point of contact with community members is how we can both engage the young uh young audiences but also sending postcards to those who value um a more in-person and uh, a more visceral connection so meeting people where they are is for us literally being at your doorstep because i don't want there to be any excuses to why um any excuses or challenges um to why someone can't access local produce um specifically produce grown from our farm. And so in addition to the produce grown to our from our farm, we make other people's farm grown produce more accessible as well. Working with over five different farms right now for deeply rooted produce. And then we're aligned with the Black Farmer Land Fund to align different farmers, uh, Black specific farmers and people of color who grow. No, actually, let me rephrase, Black Black Farmer Land Fund is specific for Black farmers, and they wanted to make sure that the, the land equity, land access, and ownership of the um, the produce and the, the commodities that are grown on those lands are of people um, of African descent. And so what Deeply Rooted Produce just does is make sure that that food, anybody who wants to distribute that food, um, can get that to their doorstep as well. So we partner with um, Eastern Market and different programs, fresh prescription programs, and we, we want to be in your face with the, the access aspect. When we talk about meeting people where they are, um, the customers change overall. So um, the, 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 the customer that wants information or education on how to prepare a, a particular meal at the house is present, but then you have this new customer who um, they want the baby, but not the labor pain. So they won't prepare food, you know, and that's, that's been a, a growing 
sexy customer that has been emerging over the past decade or so. Um, and you see grocery stores adapt to that demand. So you have more prepared food than you've ever seen in any place. Um, you see them in the grocery stores more than ever. Um, you see frozen meals and you see all these different alternatives. And, you know, people want frozen, people want prepared, but they don't want, you know, our artificial food, fake food or chemicals and whatnot. So um, that's where the local edge comes in at because we can do a lot of that stuff. Um, your impact in the local economy, but it's not necessarily a detriment to your health. So um, having that convenience is there. And then looking at just the two models of deeply rooted being mobile, neighborhood grocery being you know, stationary and still, you need both. Um, we live in the motor city, but 30% of our um, Detroit residents don't have a car. And then speaking to our public transportation and how ineffective and inefficient that it is, you need both. You need a standalone brick and mortar location where people can come to that's drivable if need be, that's walkable if need be, that's deliverable if need be. But then you need that mobility to go places where um, people may just be a little bit outside of that radius for it to make sense to come to neighborhood grocery. Now you have deeply rooted as an alternative that um, not only has locally grown food, locally pr prepared food, um, they have a way to get it to you at your doorstep in like a farm, farm the door manner. Um, and then having culture as well, you know, the education um, has been, uh, or culture as well has not been present in the food presentation. So I'm a city, I grew up in the city. I didn't grow up going to farmer's markets and we didn't have um, that as a thing for us, you know what I'm saying? Going to Eastern Market growing up when I was a kid, Man, that was hell. I hated going. It, it was just a pride. I didn't, but I didn't understand. You know what I'm saying? So when my mother and my grandmother would be going there, I didn't understand the therapeutic experience it was to see locally grown food and people that look like them or people that they are familiar with um, providing food for them to feed themselves. It wasn't until I became an adult. Um, and seeing how fractured community can be when you don't have that piece of connection and culture in your community. Um, that it started to become a priority to me. So um, reconnecting that culture. And then we got to be clear, everything that Daz and I are doing collectively and individually, um, we will never be able to stack up against any big box corporation like Walmart, Amazon with Whole Foods, Kroger, Meyer, et cetera. We'll never be able to compete. Um, but the one thing they don't have is culture. They don't have community. They don't have all those things. So we don't have to compete at that point. All we're doing is just changing our people, helping our people out. Um, and that can become something that spreads with everybody else in these different communities and pockets of communities. So um, that's where you meet people where they are is give them what, you know, they need outside of just a, a good pricing point or, you know, good food. They need education. They need entertainment, they need culture, and they also just need somebody that's present in whatever medium they need them to be present in. If you need a, a brick and mortar location, we got that for you. You need a mobile alternative, we got that for you. You need something that's raw and fresh, we got that for you. You need something that's prepared, we got that too. So um, that's how you meet people where they are outside of um, the corporate traditional model, you know what I mean? And, We've been, you know, working on that because times are changing. 
things are changing every day. Prices are changing. Distribution is, is changing. Everything is changing. One thing that tends to stay the same is, you know, we all going, we, we all a part of the same culture. Um, we all need to eat. So finding a way to marry the two and keep them married, you know, we always in a fight. We always have an advantage uh, with that. I wanted to hear if you guys had any anecdotes that you could share from um, families, community members who who you um, are now serving, but who didn't have the access before and how, how their lives have changed like before and after your guys' solution came along. I know we service a lot of um, seniors as well. And um, a lot of them, they love consistency. They will be loyal to the consistency of um, the business and or enterprise. And so with us, they, if we're delivering on Thursday at X o'clock, they literally will text me and be like, oh, hey, I'm outside waiting or, you know, you didn't come at X, Y, Z time or, you know, changing delivery uh, drivers. But I will get text messages of recipes like, hey, and I have pictures too. Um, I made such and such this week or I, I did stuffed peppers and all these different things that they they understood, but they wouldn't have been at Eastern Market because it's too many people. One, um, both health and physical um, mobility concerns, and then two, um, uh, just driving there in general. So, um, getting getting to be in people's faces or uh, meeting them where they are, as far as like physicality and geographical location, has been really beneficial to facilitate their ability to um you know eat their meals and stuff like that because there's a lot of seniors who don't want to live alone so they live in apartments and um they um enjoy community living so i i feel as though we provide some type of community living especially once we start um educating them more about the farmers that we work with um i really really think that they'll value more um who they're getting their food from and then with the fresh prescription program there's majority black and people of color who black and indigenous people of color who we service through the Fresh Prescription Program. Now that's through Henry Ford and hospital systems, health systems. So they're getting their food in a different way and it's not, uh, it's being prescribed, fresh prescription. You know, is they're getting a prescription for fruits and vegetables for ailments such as diabetes, heart disease, and all those other different things that doctors are valuing or learning to value as um, a means to cure or uh, facilitate health. And so um, there have been people waiting at the door. As soon as you tell them like, hey, we coming, they say, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I look so forward to, you know, getting this produce. And there are some people who value local produce more than, um, than uh, the non-local produce that we see in traditional grocery stores, like the bananas and things like that. Um, but once they're educated, about um, why local produce is a, is a, a is important and the nutrients that we can get from that, um, they 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 transition into um, so more people value the non-local more than the um, the local produce and they don't realize like stuff might have holes in it or it might have um, bruises and things like that. 
But uh, once they get educated about why that is the way that it is and where it came from, then um, there's a different outlook on it. So, Being in the Jefferson Chalmers neighborhood and community, we see what I see just a different level of like activation out of the neighbors. Um, being that it's an equity crowdfunded store and people can become investors and things like that, their creative juices are flowing on how they can contribute to that store being a success. So when dad say like, you know, working with people that look like her, um, well, that store has to be a representation of the neighborhood that it's serving. Um, and I'm seeing so many ideas come across the table like, okay, I can grow this and bring that to the store. I can cook this and have that in the store. I can do this for the store. Um, that that has always been a good eyeball test because I've been in neighborhoods where the neighbors didn't even care. And that, you know, the model just didn't work there. But being in the Jefferson Chalmers neighborhoods, you're seeing so much activation um, within that, just that block alone. Everybody want to be a part of that store, you know, not only as just a consumer, um, they want to be a producer as well. And if you just imagine just looking down the line and saying, hey, we got a whole street of producers that's doing something in that store, but doing something beyond that, um, that's change. You know what I mean? You can't beat that. So um, outside of what Daz has spoken to, you know, because we see the, the customer feedback um, doing the deliverables every week and delivering these boxes uh, with the standalone option, you see just a different level of excitement, but just engagement. You know, I mean, that store, that was a liquor store um, before we took it over and started building our neighborhood grocery and people didn't want to touch it outside of the folks that wanted liquor. Now you see healthy food coming in, but you also just see opportunity. If you didn't even see the healthy food, you see opportunity. So people are building opportunity around that opportunity. You know what I'm saying? I got a kitchen. I can do this, you know, um, I got trucks, I can move this or do that. So um, the spirit of entrepreneurship has been, become more um, visible to me um, outside of myself because of the store being built. No, I appreciate you guys sharing the the stories of how people have, you know, started to uh, see changes in their own lives because of what you guys are doing. and are seeing more opportunities and that's so awesome to hear because and I'm sure it feels it feels really fulfilling to see that even like small steps of progress like just taking it one day at a time and seeing the impact you're making on even one person at a time um so that's really huge you guys spoke a bit about just like big box retailers and kind of their role within this this ecosystem that you guys are in and I know it's new for me, and, and some of our listeners also may be new to this, but what role do you think those big box retailers are playing, um, the, the Walmarts, the Whole Foods, the Myers, um, in, in the problem? Um, Raphael mentioned a bit earlier, like the prepared foods, um, the lack of culture and community, um, the lack of investment, you know, in this. but. But yeah, what what problem, how do you think they're actually a part of this problem within the ecosystem and how is that a directly impacted you all's mission? I believe that big box stores are perceived to be bigger, better, um, 
and it, it has detached people from culture and detached people from the mom and pop stores. The the fact that there is an owner of this store is not just a family of people who, um, who made a decision to legacy for legacy and all these different things. When it comes to smaller businesses, there may actually just be this one person that does everything although it may not be as beneficial at the moment in time, but they're still in the process of transitioning to um, something bigger and better. So the value of, um, one, the value of the products, two, um, the value in the products in addition to um, that culture that comes along with that product, why it was made, how it was made, where the products come from, or the ingredients come from, um, in the people alongside of that. So bigger and better, convenient, quick, fast, and easy, because you are what you eat. You know, if people are getting a lot of quick, fast, and easy food, and what kind of, I don't mean to go that way, but at the same time, what kind of relationships and partnerships are you attracting in your life as well? Um, and what kind of energy do you have? You just have some quick, fast, and easy energy that dissipates for very quickly, or do you have some long-term, long-lasting, um, delayed gratifying, delayed gratification, delayed gratifying energy that can propel you forward towards your legacy and things like that? You look at a big box corporation like Kroger or Amazon with Whole Foods, you know, they are expecting to sell food to a customer at this pricing point that's here that's not equitable for the person that's producing it, that's putting this much work into it. So um, if I want to get in this big box establishment and um, I'm going to do, you know, $100,000 worth of work, but only get paid $30,000 for it, you know, it's creating an imbalance between the people that's doing essential work and the way that corporations are presenting that work because um, they want to sell, they, they have the bargaining power you know, say, hey, we don't even gonna buy your product if you're gonna sell it to us basically for free. <laughs> so um, it creates this huge imbalance between people that are actually producing food. And that's not even, you know, because these big box corporations are not producing food, you know, for the most part. They're buying food from the farmers like Daz and I and others that have infrastructure to produce thousands, tens of thousands of pounds of anything but doing it at a real deep discount um, because food overall is in America um, about dollars and cents. And it's not about um, actually feeding people what they need so that they can sustain and grow and whatever. It's about how much money I can make off of it and how fast can I make it. But yeah, we got people going hungry left and right. There should be nobody struggling to, to make a meal, find a meal, but that's all you see in America. So. Um, the model itself that corporations present, um, it creates all types of imbalances. People feel like they have to work more um, to make more. They end up not making enough, and they still got to take care of a family, feed themselves, stay sociable, because that's important as well. And none of that is possible with the big box model. So um, the, things have to change, and having a more local, uh, more local approach or a local um, alternative to the big boxes gives that type of not even competition, but it just gives another option for people. Um, and it kind of restores peace on a lot of levels, personally and professionally. To your point, Rafael, it's not even a competition. It's just different. It's two different 
type of experiences, you know, that the, the community is getting. And, and you guys have really proven the model of the community wants to be invested as opposed to somebody just coming in and telling them what they need and want. Um, Raphael, you mentioned something I thought was really cool too. You talked about how McDonald's is not even in the food business. Like they're a distributor, right? They're just pushing food through unhealthy food. And then when you look at where they place their actual businesses at, it's almost like, in my mind, it's like to keep those communities in those unhealthy spaces, right? Um, like on, on eight mile, a few miles um, from John R, a tropical smoothie was just built over there. Right across the street, it's been a Popeye's there, um, a Burger King um, as well. And I was like, yo, that is so dope. Okay, wow, we can finally get like a tropical smoothie. We're deserving of that, right, in 2022. So can you talk more about why McDonald's is actually a real estate, um, I think you said a, a real estate company, and um, versus us thinking they're a fast food company. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, so, well, I mean, so fast food in essence, um, especially with their proximity to inner cities is all been strategic and adverse, adversely effective to, you know, inner city communities, predominantly black and brown or colored communities. So um, the, the uh, Lyndon Johnson administration have been looking at ways to stimulate the economies in places like Detroit, but specifically they were looking at Watts, California. Um, they were looking at a black community that had been decimated by a riot or however they wanted to, uh, you know, pin it. But they were looking at how can we stimulate this economy? And they looked at different industries that them as the federal government could say, Hey, we're going to provide all the resources necessary to make sure that these industries enter these communities and that the people are a part of it as far as owners like franchise owners, et cetera, so that we can stimulate this economy, build jobs and build ownership, et cetera. Um, different industries came up, auto industry, um, you know, telecommunications, media, et cetera, all came up as an option, but fast food was chosen. So when you see like Kentucky Fried Chickens becoming a, um, you just see them everywhere. That was all by intention and strategy. Um, when you see McDonald's and things like that, they were they weren't incentivized to come into these communities. So um, when you're looking at the different advantages that these businesses present, they're not coming from the standpoint of okay, we're gonna come in and bring food, good experience, blah blah blah. Like they got, we got tax advantages to come. We got, you know, certainly so many different benefits to be in the hood. We gonna come in the hood. Um, that also created a real um, challenge for people that were really food driven, like grocery stores and and you know healthy food outlets, because no money is being lent to the grocery store or whatever. It's all being lent to the fast food franchise. I believe in a book that I was reading for every 20, for every $1 that was given to a grocery store in Linden from SBA, $25 was given to a fast food franchise. So um, there were so many advantages that came into these businesses entering the community that they entered at a rapid rate. So they outnumbered grocery stores almost 30 to one 
because financially it benefited them where it never benefited the grocery store. Um, the intention was that black you know, ownership would increase, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, now we see one, a health consequence because there were many black franchise owners and many you know, black um, pretty much ran and operated fast food franchises, but now the home-cooked meal has been decimated. So if you work at KFC, I'm gonna take KFC home every day to my kids and they eating that every day. So now there's a health consequence, there's a health crisis. And then when these stores um, are victim of a high theft and blah, 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 they get priced out when you are a black owner and you can't afford the insurance and can't afford the franchise fees, things like that. So then these stores are now sold to people that aren't even from the community anymore. And it just creates a whole world of dysfunction. So, um, that's the root of it, but then outside of that, the health thing that what we look to address is provide healthier food. Um, these stores never had the, the profit motive of being a health food store or even a food store um, because of whatever government advantages they could take advantage of. And I honestly can't say that that's something that you know we should frown upon um, in a capitalistic world. Is like you just have to find capitalists that are working to, um, you know, heads that and go against that like myself. So I'm not looking at the tax advantages to say, well, let me get as much as I can for myself. I'm looking at the tax advantages of how I can be equitable with it. So that um, that's the thing. That's a that's a real thing. There's books written about it, articles, etc. Supersize America. Supersizing America is probably the the best book that I will refer to reading about how fast food became a thing in black communities, but just in America, because outside in suburbs, the same way as well, they have more healthier food outlets, but you definitely just see fast food everywhere. I also did want to mention too, that um, it's based off of uh, all the incentives, incentives and everything of these large companies, the challenge that we also face as small businesses because they provide jobs as well. They're putting X amount of jobs back into the city. So the, the municipal impact that they have as well um, hits harder than the actual environmental or the culture. Well, it, it all is inclusive. It's deeply, it's deeply rooted because it goes back to the actual entities that run the city and that facilitate the jobs and the, the, um, whatever else goes into the livelihood of the people who actually live in those cities. I think in three different ways, you guys kind of iterated a, a similar point, which is that there's a big movement that is required to change the mindsets that add to the problem that you guys are trying to solve. And that's going to take time, right? But um, I, th I think there's lots of different solutions working towards helping change people's mindsets behind why we do the things we do and why we're looking for instant gratification all the time. Um, I started my company Trio to try and build a future with zero band-aid solutions for chronic conditions. And so obviously a huge, huge problem is the fact that, you know, instant gratification, we're looking at chronic disease and instead of looking at the root of the problem, we're looking at the symptoms and then attacking them with medication when really we should we, we we should be looking at the root first right and so that stems from so many things and so we're looking at 
our members social determinants of health so that obviously includes access to food what kind of food that is community support um you know your cultural support and more to actually help people change the way that they think about their health and to change the way that the world approaches fighting disease and you guys are obviously building a movement because you're attempting to change the way you can um, influence communities by making sure that there is a cultural element um, combined with healthy food, combined with literacy, and all of that to really change the way that communities think about health as a whole and how people have access to the resources they need. So I'm wondering if you guys have any specific projects or community outreach that you've done be particularly effective in engaging individuals to to um to take advantage of like the resources that you guys have been offering them i can speak of one project that i'm um knee deep in now taste of diaspora um taste diaspora is a food agency that i started along with two of my friends who are also food influencers in the city both chefs um, both come from uh, uh, just a world of experience. So um, one of my partners is the manager of Whole Foods. Um, my other uh, partner has worked in the administrative capacities of several food organizations. Um, she also is pretty much an expert in food safety, things of that nature. So uh, we engage, we use Taste of Diaspora as one a way to celebrate Black history um, and black contributions to American cuisine, you know, from food, you know, makers, inventors, et cetera. But in that excitement and in that engagement and entertainment, we provide mutual aid. So um, we use the entertainment, the celebratory elements and things like that, the, the, um, the engagement with people in our, we do shoebox lunches, uh, which is a replication of the shoebox lunch from Jim Crow. Um, back when uh, African-Americans couldn't travel throughout the country freely, um, they would sometimes, well, many times, they would pack lunches when they were traveling from the South to the North or back down to the South um, to keep from stopping. They would pack food so they have to stop to a, a gas station and risk one being rejected or being killed. They would pack food and lunches. So we were replicating that and using that as a form of media as a form of education, but as a form of engagement. Once we bring people in from the customer side, many of those consumers are, um, you know, heads of different organizations that may be able to help us out. And then we then disperse that help out to other organizations or other partners that we have. We partner with other food makers, whether it's urban gardeners, farmers, um, other chefs, other restaurants, et cetera, um, in these boxes or food presentations that we do. Um, but it's all just a big ball, a circle of collaboration, but just distribution of information, resources, clubs, et cetera. Um, that's one way off the top of the head, off the top of my head that I've been engaged and outside of like we're deeply rooted. Um, we use just the culture um, to bring people in to one place, and then that culture accompanies different resources, different expertises, et cetera. And then we help disperse them in a form of mutual aid to everybody in the food system because we all need the help. And it's very, it's very unselfish to just pass it out. It's very selfish to just hold it in and say, I'm going to help myself only and whatever. But no, we use that 
opportunity to make sure that everybody that we know work with don't work with within the food system um, and share common goals and paths that we do um, make sure that they are in the know and also that they are in good positioning to take advantage of these things. And that's one thing off the top amongst others. You know, obviously neighborhood groceries are open yet, but that would be another outlet of, you know, a way of that we can engage. You know, that, that brick and mortar space is also a mixed use space. So outside of the store, there's a unit above that used to be an apartment, and then you have retail behind it. All of that is supposed to spark forms of mutual aid, uh, forms of expression, culture, et cetera, so that we can um, engage with people outside of just food. Um, political engagement, educational engagement, culture engagement, all of that can happen, but the medium is always starting with food and then kind of going from there. And those are two examples I can think of, but, you know, th those are very effective ways and, um, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been working and it can continue to evolve, um, but given where Detroit is right now, it's been extremely effective, so. Um, I, you know, thought of those above anything else. And I think um, th that's a good transition into uh, what Deeply Rooted does as far as the Sunday dinners. Um, we have weekly Sunday dinners that engage the communities in a traditional way that some families come together for Sunday and um, for Sunday meals. So when it comes to literally, I've learned that some grandmothers literally cook on Sundays every single week just to bring their family together. So we do that on a community platform in the garden with food harvested from the garden. Um, chefs that have a visual connection to the land. We work with Sisters on the Roll, Chef B um, or Harriet Brown. She grew up on a farm and it's, it's more so of the love that she pours into the food um, that she can articulate and demonstrate to people um, more than anything. And then we work with Alexandria of uh, Mad Creates and the, the proficiency of loving on yourself, as she says, making it easier to love on yourself and only using a simple, a, a few ingredients to make this profound meal, the combination of the two just facilitate some type of internal journey, I would say, uh, both spiritual, mental, and physical, that helps heal the community. We have to, there's a lot of people who are doing a lot of individual work, self-work, shadow work, but when we start doing the communal work um, together in community spaces, brown, brown, black, purple people, all of us can come together and have a mutual understanding of like, hey, this is what we're doing, this is what we want to do, and this is how you can help, um, because those are all donation-based dinners as well, and something that we're going to be doing this year is doing them at the neighborhood grocery, so um, with uh, just engaging the east side of Detroit and those who valued us being at the garden, we can combine the, the, the visceral I keep using the word visceral, but it, it just means anatomically, it means close to the heart. So um, that's that's why I really uh, keep using those words. Um, so yeah, just combining what the land means to the people and putting that on a plate 
and exemplifying that um, in community healing is really important. I really think that that presence has been the most way, the most beneficial way that we can engage the community at this moment. Uh, one of the biggest questions that, that we get all the time is like, okay, yes, I have this idea, but I have no clue how to fund this. So can you all share how you fund your your missions and how effective that's been thus far in your journey? Equity crowdfunding. So um, a little background in crowdfunding, and I'm pretty sure, you know, most of the viewers have seen crowdfunding um, in some sort, whether it's GoFundMe, um, someone needs money for a surgery or, you know, <laughs> raising money for a specific cause, whatever, um, you can do a GoFundMe, Kickstarter, things like that. Um, that became a theme for small businesses um, in 2012 with the JOBS Act that um, President Barack Obama passed. Um, traditionally, enterprises uh, could only raise money in a certain manner from a certain type of investor. Um, well, that changed um, with President Obama passing the Jobs Act, that basically said that small businesses or private-owned enterprises, more specifically, could you know do a capital raise similar to what you would see on Wall Street. So taking small amounts of money from small, you know, from you know people all across a specific area or discipline, um, you can capitalize a business. Um, I personally see that as the future for specifically community development projects like Deeply Rooted and, and neighborhood groceries all across the country. Um, we can raise money with having a following, um, having a cause that aligns with other folks, um, being really tapped in with a community of people that has $20, $50, and you can take that times that population of people, you are in real good position to fund and capitalize a project. Um, I am one of the lucky ones in the community and in this realm of crowdfunding where um, just under 80%, it was over, but with the sliding scale of cost that's been happening with inflation, just under 80% of my project has been funded via crowdfunding um, from non-accredited investors, which are basically people that are not wealthy, um, contributing $10, $50, $100 to a campaign that I am spearheading to say, hey, I want to open a grocery store in the community and you can become an investor, which means you are entitled to shares of profit, prop, you know, project discounts, et cetera. You can come up with an array of ways to entice this investor um, to become a part of your enterprise or business on the investment side. That has helped me tremendously. Um, one is a great form of marketing. So even when I was crowdfunding and wasn't raising a lot of money, I got an opportunity to build relationships with people who have money. Um, then when the money started rolling in, it just made me more capital ready, but also it positioned me to maybe go get a loan, to get a grant, or just open up a, a world of relationships that I didn't have before. So that crowdfunding has really been my um my lifeblood i live by it and will absolutely in this lifetime die by it because it is the future and it will be the standard of how um businesses can become a cap capitalized enterprise to not only start but sustain um disrupting this current system of like red tape when you go to traditional financial enterprises um 
I have more in the world, in my opinion. But I've been told no one too many times because of things that are, you know, it doesn't really make sense. And also, like, I don't, I didn't come from a wealthy family. I didn't inherit wealth or privilege or influence. So going in those places and sitting at those tables have never been to my advantage. But now I don't need that advantage no more because I can raise money uh, with regular people to regular people. Um, and it makes it, it makes it a happier process. Um, and it's a, it's a much easier one for me when I'm connecting with the people that I work with for every day. Um, it makes it all worthwhile and it makes it easier. You know, going through the loan process is so strenuous. Um, and it is so many buts. So I was just this close to getting this loan, but um, you was going to get this grant, but you're going to get this, but, and I don't have that anymore. Uh, for the most part. Now, we still have a funding gap. We still need money to run the business. We still need money to grow and expand. Um, and those challenges will come up, but I feel confident and I feel empowered that I have this tool versus going the traditional route. Um, the traditional route is always there as well. You know, loans, investments, and the, of a, a more accredited size, um, grants, et cetera. But that's what I've been living off of as far as like the way to capitalize a business like that's just, I live by it, you know, um, make sure that you're updating investors on the progress of this project, good, bad, or indifferent, showing transparency, but just the passion that you put into these projects, people see it and $50 don't hurt, you know what I mean? So here go my $50, it's, it's not breaking my pocket, but times that by 10,000 people, 20,000 people, whatever, um, what can't you not build and what community can't be built off of that? I mean, that's the old, it's the old method that the Asian communities have been using in America for the longest time. Um, Latinx, Latinx communities have been using it. African communities that have come from Africa over to America, they are a money pool. And that's all it is, is a form of money pool. And you cannot go wrong when your community is invested in itself building from the ground up real grassroots like can't beat it you know community that can build together can't be stopped and I, I live by that and i think that's the future and that's really what i want to put in the community is just that vehicle of capital fundraising as well as ways for us to come sit down and really figure out these are problems in our community this is how we gonna fix it okay how much money do it take let's raise it ourselves and that's really what i've been um looking to instill outside of the grocery store. Again, it starts with food, but it doesn't end there. So I just want to put that in the world, um, particularly in the communities that we're from, because it'd be a great, great asset to all. Yeah, and we've had similar experiences with both crowdfunding, neighborhood funding um, on a smaller scale. And so we, um, we've we participated in something called IOB. We participated in Detroit Soup many times. Um, all of these are community grassroots organizations that facilitate um, neighbors uh, donating and investing in your vision, your, your mission, um, and what you seek to accomplish. So... Um, We've, uh, in addition to that, we've gotten some non-traditional grants, uh, both through social enterprise competitions and through um, large investors. We are involved with the likes of like the USDA now so that we're um, getting involved with 
more um, more structured entities, I guess. Um, but we have to make sure that it's we're operating in integrity and making sure that it uh, aligns with our mission. So we we have a lot of options, but if we don't have any grant funding and any uh, external funding options, our uh, our internal you know sales streams and revenue streams are something that we strategically position um, so that we can fund whatever else we would like to do throughout the season. So we offer like CSA subscriptions, which is a community supported agriculture uh, produce box subscription. And then we also offer starting this year individual produce items like fish is what we're going to introduce in addition to the produce itself that's grown at our farm. Um, so individual items, uh, herbs, spinach, salad mixes, tomatoes, all those different things. People can create their own, you know, grocery bag like they were to shop at a, a traditional box store. So we we definitely um, dabble into the traditional more fundraising aspects uh, but when you don't have or when one doesn't have the financial literacy to manage those funds ten thousand dollars don't mean nothing at all we've had several hundreds of thousands of dollars and it go it seems as though it goes super fast because it's like oh well we could have invested in this or we could have did this but we we did what we we did the best that we could with what we had at the time. And I appreciate all of the people who've invested in us and still see the vision for us um, to proceed forward. So we're, we're still learning on how, what opportunities of fundraising and uh, revenue generating uh, work best for us um, and working on those internal streams right now. Yeah, and I, I wanna jump in one second. What is the last point on that? Because that is very important. Um, you know, we in our community, we've been taught so often that, you know, all you need is the money, you know, all you need is the money and then things will change, not just professionally, but personally, we know personally it don't work and it definitely don't work business wise because you have a million dollars, but you got a problem and you don't have a solution or know how to solve it. Now you got a million dollar problem. So you have to have. Um, that knowledge and things like that. And I've always really, I valued the way that the city has started to develop in the ways that different technical assistances have been provided. Um, I was lucky to take advantage of several of those technical assistances. I believe that a lot of them in the city personally um, kind of sold themselves as something different. Um, and it gave us the the uh, extra incentive to participate because we thought we were gonna get paid. Like, you know, if you do this work, you're gonna get some money on the end of it. When you should just say, here, do this work and learn something and, you know, kind of take it to your next path. A lot of us wanted to get some type of grant or some type of pay for that time when in reality, it was really school for us. So um, having those things in place along with money makes things better. And that's the beauty of community um, because when you're doing it by yourself, it's very hard. You know what I mean? It's very hard and you are responsible for retaining all of this information. Whereas if you had a team or a community, it's much better and it's easier. You know what I mean? So you can really structure, sustain and grow a million times quicker because you have all of those other functions in place along with the money. You know, so like I've always, you know, I've not said it in my last comment about like, 
the crowdfunding will not only bring money, but it'll bring people together to say, hey, what are our real problems? And we need to come up with some solutions. So that's the first question you need to be asking. Where are the issues? Where are we going to do to solve them? Okay, now how much is it? And let's start raising the money to get it done, which is just safe. If nothing else is safe, and oftentimes we kind of take the role in reverse and say, let's raise a bunch of money and you don't know what to do with it. And it's happened to me. It's happened to a lot of us. So, you know, dad's really hit a very, very, very pivotal point with something that I know me and her both individually and collectively have done. Like we got money and you know what the hell to do with it. It's like, it's here, you know, but now how do we make that investment a strategic one? versus something that, you know, wasted our time. I could speak to buying market research. Um, when I raised $50,000 and the market report was 20 and I still got to open a store. So now I'm, now I'm 30 light and I needed that other 20 to make something happen on the equipment side or whatever. Now I don't have it no more because I had to buy one document and you guys have to find ways to get more inventive and things like that. So, um, just want to make that point along, you know, alongside of what she said, because that's very important. Everything that you guys have shared about, honestly, I mean everything, but especially structuring your business, funding, and making sure that you're working with your community to lift your venture and just people around you up and constantly being conscious of all of those things i think are some of the most valuable things that people are going to take away from this um and we really just want to thank you guys for sh coming on and sharing your stories like you guys have no idea every time we record an episode i think we both just leave so energized and inspired by the amazing work that everyone we have on is doing um just individually and together like you guys are an awesome team and you guys are doing such awesome work and we're super excited to share that with our listeners and just make sure that you guys are i don't know getting any any extra attention that we can give you we're still a growing podcast but anything that we can do to help please make sure to let us know um and with that like as our final thing we would love for you guys to just share what your hope is for the next generation of social entrepreneurs and how you hope what you guys are doing with um urban plug neighborhood grocery um deeply rooted um what you hope you can do to just help them be more successful and just serve as an inspiration for them um, for me it's more so uh how can those who have great ideas and great visions connect with something that already exists um, instead of just starting something new because they had a, a, a big idea. Um, a lot of people and shoot, a lot of elders uh, may have a great idea and may be doing the work, but they're exhausted and they need a spark. Um, they need some, they need a, another fire to, to ignite theirs. Um, and so partnering with other organizations or first seeking out organizations that may be doing something similar, they won't be doing the exact same thing that you want to do. But I really would love to encourage the next generation to collaborate with elders and people who are already doing the work that they want to do or um, in some shape or form. So uh, if you don't collaborate with other people, you'll end up being exhausted and um, you can get burnt out after a certain period of time. And it may, depending on 
the field of work you're in, it may happen sooner than later. Um, So when it comes to the holistic healing work, it it happens more sooner than later because we're dealing with people, we're dealing with healing, we're dealing with holistic um, interactions. So sometimes people take that home with them and take it personal. Um, so not taking things so personal and hum- humbling ourselves and figuring out, hey, such and such, I've been doing this for X amount of years. Um, and now there's this organization that has this amount of land or this amount of resources. I've been looking for that all my, you know, in X amount of time. I might as well just go reach out to them and see if they need any help or, you know, see if they need anything from me. And then we can figure out, you know, what I can get from that relationship. Because once we approach um, in approach community healing as a community and disregard ego and things like that, that's when we really can elevate and propel forward as a community and, and individuals. We all, you know, again, going to what I was speaking to in the beginning, if you are uh, subscribing to a capitalistic view in any way, shape or form, um, you want to make money, you know, and you shouldn't be ashamed of that. It's how you reinvest that money or route that money once it's made that makes a world of difference in your life and the lives of others. So that feathers what Dash is talking about with collaboration with um you know research with just reaching out um that is not possible when you're just profit driven um or not as possible when you're profit driven but when you are change driven thinking about impact thinking about infecting the lives of people around you in a positive manner um collaboration comes natural the exchange of information from one person to the next becomes natural. Um, the the transfer of game and knowledge and resources or whatever, it just becomes a natural organic thing when you're thinking about impact. When everybody is impactful, everybody is impacted. When everybody's impacted, um, this this level, everybody reaches it like this. We all go up together, whereas if I'm the only one doing it, I'm in control of how you do it. And there's no shared space in that. And there's no shared foundation in that in social entrepreneurship. Um, it's about people, it's about the planet, and, and profit is there too. But you have to think about um, how you are affecting everybody around you, um, whether it's positive or negative. We get it wrong often because we think we're helping out and many times we, we are a detriment. Um, we all will fall victim to that. Um, but it's just a conscious effort that I think always puts you in a better position to change, to fix things. I mean, the person I was yesterday, I'm not the same person today. And I'm not talking about yesteryear. I'm talking about from March 23rd, 2022 to March 24th, 2022. I'm not the same person. So um approaching everything from an impact standpoint it aligns all of that and then it sets your mechanics out properly so that you can be conditioned um to move the way that you need to move and just do everything that you need to do in this social realm um can't speak for everybody else that's you know driven for profit we're talking about anybody that's driven for impact money is good money is cool money is great but change is always better than that. So um, I think that'll wrap up both for me 
you know, um, and that's how I approach everything. The mechanics don't really change, you know, how to, you know, how to write out a business plan, how to, you know, pursue funding, how to, all that stuff is similar. Whether you are non-profit, for-profit, low-profit, whatever, it's where the heart is at and where the mind is at. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind. You can always be heard. Thank you.